Good morning. Thank you, Jim. Would you just take a look around just real quickly? I know some of you already were checking out what people are wearing and where they're sitting and all that kind of stuff. This is, this is plan A. This is plan A. This is God's plan. It's the church. It's the bride of his son, Jesus. It's this mess. It's this. Take a look around. This is it. This is the, this is the living expression of God's love for this world. And it falls on us to live out what Jim just prayed. Remember Jesus prayed in John 17. This is not the message, so don't take any notes. In John 17, he said, Father, would you make them one as we are one so that the world would know that you sent me? And he says it twice in the same, in the same moment. He says it twice. So when the world... Though the world meaning people who are, are looking for truth, they're looking for the answers, they're looking for the, the significance of being on this planet and this breath that I have. Jesus says when they look at this mess, would they see that there's unity, that there's that love that Jim just prayed for? Because that's what God wants to use to make himself known to our world. Do we get that? I hope so, because we are going to leave this place in the three or four hours when I get done, and, okay, you're listening, and we're going to go out, and the unity that is here goes with us, the, the foundation of that love. In fact, this whole year, we have, we're, we're going to challenge ourselves to love first, to love first. There's a big difference between responding and reacting. Would you agree? Parents of teenagers, would you agree? There's a big, and I meant the parents, not the teenagers. There's a big difference between responding in the moment and reacting. Before I do anything, before I form a judgment or opinion, before I react, I want to first make sure that I'm standing in the love of Jesus Christ. I need to first reflect on how has God loved this guy, and from that rock, if you will, that perspective, then love the person in front of me. You with me? Is that easy to do? Come on, you liars. It's not those that said it is. <laughs> Sorry, I love you. I shouldn't say liars. <laughs> you deluded, lovely people. It's not easy, is it, to love first? Thank you, Jim, because that's exactly what God's called us to be and to do. And we are plan A. There is no plan B. Right? It's on us, and we can't forget that. I want to encourage you to take out your bulletin. We are going to, it is packed with stuff, Matt, because we're going to go there several times, and I'm going to ask you to go there right now. If you don't have one, raise your hand. Um, who's in the back? Randy, would you be willing to grab some bulletins, just if there's any, anybody that doesn't have one? Take out this. Now, th there's a video on our website. You can go watch this video. I would encourage you, if you've not done that, to tape this up somewhere in your house. If you have kids or grandkids, the perfect place is the refrigerator. refrigerator, yes. And just throw away some of those pictures that you should have thrown away a long time ago. I'm sorry. I'm guilty of it myself. But, you know, it's the one that you look at every morning and you go, what is that again? Honey, what were they trying to draw? I can't tell what that is. Is that me? Is that the dog? What, you know? I know. It, but you don't have to throw them away. But make space somewhere in your house. Because some of the moms are just looking at me. I know. I'm going to get emails this week. 
put this up somewhere in your house and refer to this. We're, what are we, week four, I think, out of 12? So we're about a third of the way through this morning. We're going to be, be here a couple of more months. And I want you to notice this morning, I want to just kind of set the context, we're wrapping up section one. And this really is the, the heart of this, of this epistle from the Apostle Paul. And it's going to get very personal this morning. We've seen Matt and Jeff have both um, really painted a clear picture of, of Paul's passion and his frustration. There's a lot of emotion that we've seen in his presentation of this truth. And it's going to continue now to the, through the end of chapter 2, which is what we're looking at this morning. And we're going to see that this is really, really personal for Paul. And my prayer is that it will become, if it hasn't already, or maybe even more so, it'll become deeply personal for you and me. We together? Okay. Good to see you, Blake. Sorry, I just called out somebody who's visiting from out of town. And that went out over the internet too, so everybody knows you're here. Okay, you got it? Take this and hang it up somewhere. You know what you could do, moms that are mad at me? Have kids paint this. Or paint, not paint. What do you do? Crayons. Yeah, color. Color. That would be a good thing to do. That would be a good thing to do. All right, join me. Would you please in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Many years ago, I was really young. I, was, I think I had been a youth pastor for about a year. And I visited a home where some of the young people lived. And I walked in, and there were a couple of guys there. I don't know if they were watching TV, playing video games or whatever. But I walked in, and the first thing that came out of one of their mouths was... Why are you here, and when are you leaving? It's like, wow, I'm so glad that I answered the call to be a youth pastor. One of those guys is sitting right back there with that silly grin on his face running our live stream. Mr. Donald Hurth was one of those guys. Do you remember that moment? Why are you here, and when are you leaving? Now, I was a little caught off guard, and I probably reacted more than responded. I don't know what I did, but that has always stuck with me. And, it, and it's a, a question that comes up every once in a while in my own life, and it's, it was meant to be, you know, why are you here, when are you leaving, we don't want you around. But think of that question from the perspective of a follower of Jesus Christ. Why am I here, and when am I leaving? Now, the second part of the question I cannot answer, can I? No, I can't, we can't. All I can do is I can live each day with, with the knowledge that I don't know how to answer that question and direct my, my energy back to the first part of the question, why am I here? Why am I here? We, we talk a lot about questions. I have a lot of questions in my mind. I put in the newsletter this week, I've been thinking. I don't know if you guys read that and my wife, I shared my wife's response. In my household, when I say, you know, I've been thinking, everything stops and she goes, uh-oh, what? And it, my, my think is, is always rooted to questions. I, I start questioning things. Simply is, why is the couch there? Is that the best place for the couch? Maybe it's not the best place for the couch. Why, why, why? Those, those kinds of questions. But there's three that in our, in our church family, in this culture, and in my own thinking and heart, and many of yours, that keep coming back up. And the first one is the why. Why are we here? We have this writing on the back wall. We want to raise up passionate followers of Jesus who live by faith, are known by love, they're a voice of hope. Jeff referenced that this morning. We're here to make disciples. Where did we, did we just kind of, that sounds like a good mission. No, in fact, it comes right from the Word of God. It comes from the lips of Jesus, does it not? And so why are we here? Well, we have a mission. 
Now, how do we do that? Because it is, it, it's not going to do a whole lot of good. It's going to, in fact, make us probably pretty stuck and discouraged if we just come up with an answer to why are we here, and then we just, okay, I'm here to make disciples. We have to ask the next question. How do we do that? How do I do that? And so we have these words up here on the front, and they come from Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go make disciples. I want you to go engage people. Why, Jesus? Because I want people to know me. I'm going back to the right hand of the Father. I was the light of the world. Guess who the light of the world is now? Us. Who's the salt of the earth? Who did Jesus say would be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Who was that? Yeah, his disciples. You'll be my witnesses, and you'll go to the ends of the earth. So our mission is to make disciples. How do we do that? We engage people. We engage them with the love we've already talked about this morning that we've received from God because we want people to know who Jesus is. Does this world know who Jesus is? Does our government know who Jesus is? In the halls of education, do they recognize who Jesus is? Or at the local elementary school or high school? Is there a sense and awareness of who Jesus is? When you watch movies and you listen to the radio, do celebrities seem to have a sense of who Jesus is? When you watch sports and the players or you listen to music or you engage this culture in any way, do you have a sense that this world knows who Jesus is? No, they don't. And that should be a problem for us. Paul said it this way, he said, the love of God compels me. I can't do anything else. I can't, I can't sit on the couch and watch TV because I, all I can think about is do people know who Jesus is? And so we engage people to know Jesus. Then we, we empower them. This word empower can be a little confusing. It's not about self-help. It's not about becoming a better version of you. It's about understanding your identity in Jesus Christ. The way Jesus said it is I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So how are we empowering people? How am I empowered to live out God's calling in my life? I need to understand that I'm a child of God. I've been adopted by the Father. I'm in his family. And Jesus said, nobody can undo that, right? That's my identity. That's who I am. I'm a disciple maker because I was baptized in the name of the Father. Here's who you are. Buried with Christ, risen with Christ, this work that Jesus has done in my life, it's, it's made it possible for me to be adopted into God's family. And I am a disciple maker. I am a follower of Jesus. I have a master. Not Becky. I know you're thinking Becky. No man can serve two masters. <laughs> I, keep, I tell her that every day. To no avail. I have a master, literally. I have a rabbi that I have given my life to follow and to do his bidding. And so when he says, go and make disciples, I okay, because that's my identity. That's my purpose. That's why I'm a father, a husband, a pastor, a friend, a brother, a son. All those things point back to what I really am in Jesus Christ. I'm a disciple maker. maker. And then he says, baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit. Because I, believe it or not, now, 30 years ago, you might have believed a little more than now, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I mean that all, in all seriousness. See, we empower people to love Jesus, 
the love that we have for him that we, re we return to him grows out of a deeper and deeper understanding that I am a child of God, I am a disciple maker, and the Holy Spirit lives within me and he will never ever leave me. That is who I am. And the only right response is for me to just love him more because I understand how deep I, I, I swim in his grace. You with me on that? And so we empower people to love Jesus, and then we equip them to obey. That word has really fallen out of, out of respect, hasn't it? Now, before we think of the world and our culture and all the struggles we're having with authority in the world, it's there. But let's not kid ourselves. We have it right here, right here, and right here. Do we not? Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for that. That's not literal. You with me? We equip to obey, teach them to, to do everything that I've commanded you to do. Everything I've commanded you. And then the, the last part is this encourage. How do we do this? How do we fulfill this mission? We encourage one another. I love Hebrews 10 where it says you got to do it more and more and more as the day gets closer. As, as the, the, the world you live in seems to be falling apart and nothing seems to make sense, encourage each other more and more. Not less and less. Not Don't isolate and separate. Don't stop coming together. Put your mask on. Keep six feet, whatever. But, but come together and encourage one another. Encourage one another to trust Jesus. You with me? Amen. You can see him? And it brings us to the third question. So why are we here? How, do we, how can we do that? What is Jesus asking of me? What's my part? See, Paul is going to get really personal this morning, and we need to get personal with him. And I want you to, if you will allow me, I just want to urge you, beg you, to get this question into your thinking and let it penetrate your heart. And as you hear God's words this morning, I pray that you no longer hear my voice, but you hear his voice saying to you, this is what I'm asking of you. In your situation, in your setting, in your moment, in your relationships, this is what I'm asking of you. What is God asking of me? We come to verse 11 of chapter 2, and Matt and Jeff have done a great job setting the table for me this morning. I feel like I could just read this and, and, and we could close in prayer. Because we get the setting, don't we? We understand what's happening. We understand Paul's heart. He's, he's explained it, why he's so passionate about what he's challenging them with, that this idea of the, there's one gospel, there's one communication from God to man. Paul got it directly from God, not from other people. And why he's so upset that they have stepped away from it. And when we come to chapter 2, verse 11, he, gets, he points us to a specific moment that I think played a big part. It shaped this letter of Galatians. He tells us about it. He says, Cephas, or Peter, came, from, came to Antioch, and I opposed him to his face. He just lays it at the beginning. What I'm about to write to you is a, the, what I'm going to describe as a conflict. And I know you love Peter. We love Peter, right? We love him because we relate to him. Sometimes it's easier, it's harder to relate to Paul for some of us. This dude was a brainiac. This dude was highly educated. And, and his commitment level is off the charts, right? 
when you read these statements that he makes. And he's, just, he's not just making plaques for the wall. He, he, he believes this and he lives it. And we, we know that. It cost him. And I look at that and I go, oh my goodness. Now Peter, on the other hand, <laughs> yeah, there's my guy. He means well. Come on, doesn't he? He loves Jesus. He got out of the boat when no one else did. He walked on the water. He swam to shore after, you know, denying Jesus three times. You know, there's lots of good things to point at. You are the, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Woohoo! Get it right. And then Peter comes to Antioch, and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What is he saying? He's saying there's no, there's no trial necessary. We don't need to provide evidence. I'll tell you what, what happened. And there's no arguing that he was wrong. He, what he did, and I'll tell you what he did. He stood condemned. He regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James, came from the church in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that James endorsed what these guys were doing or saying, but they probably were messengers. However, when they came, these certain men from Jerusalem, from James, he withdrew and he separated himself. He stopped eating with the Gentiles because he, what? Feared. If you're taking notes or if you're making something on your phone, a little note, just write the word fear. Put the word fear. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. He feared those from the circumcision party, the Judaizers, those that Paul had been talking about that were corrupting the gospel. Ah, oh, think about that. The Apostle Peter, one of the, the, identified as a pillar of the church, someone that Jesus personally commissioned to feed his sheep, he was afraid of those who were perverting the gospel. You see Paul's intensity, his passion? He feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews, they joined in, other leaders, they joined in with his what? Hypocrisy. So that even Barnabas, remember Barnabas? How many relate to Barnabas? This is a good guy, isn't he? Who went and got Paul and brought him in so that the church would embrace him and we have the benefit of Paul? Who was that? Barnabas. Oh, that was Barnabas. What about Mark? Oh, that was Barnabas. <laughs> Who sold his own property and gave it to the church to meet the needs of other people? Who was that? Oh, that's right. What does Barnabas mean? Encouragement. This is a good guy. This is, a, this is a guy who's deep into grace, deep into his relationship with Jesus. Even Barnabas was carried away by their what? Hypocrisy. When I saw, but when I saw, it was like this is the breaking point, that they were deviating, literally to go off track, to go off the path. They were deviating from the truth of the gospel. When I saw that they were they were not walking the, 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 the narrow path. They were, in fact, stepping away from what we know to be true in Jesus Christ. When I saw that, I couldn't, I couldn't stand still anymore. And so I told Cephas in front of everyone. He walked up to Cephas in some setting, and he says, Peter, if you who are a Jew, I don't know if he wagged his finger, but I'm going to wag my finger because it feels right. If you who are a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, these are, this is, I've said this before, this is one of those moments, Matt, you might think this too. There's moments in Scripture where you just want to know what, some details of what happened next. I want to know what Peter said, I want to know if everybody went, <gasps> Paul just called out Peter. I, we don't know. We'll have to wait till heaven, and maybe it won't matter then, but we're not given that. It just, 
If you're a Jew, Peter, and you live like Gentile, you have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you no longer are living by the law and all the requirements of that, how can you compel Gentiles to do that? Specifically, we're not supposed to eat with Gentiles according to the law, but we know that Jesus fulfilled the law, and you were living it until those people showed up. Our lives are expressions of the gospel. Don't miss this. Our life, my life, Kurt Pearson's life is an expression of the gospel and it is on display for the benefit of others. I want everybody to attach to that. Now let me pause, hold that thought, and let me talk to leaders for just a second because I know not everybody sees themselves as a leader. Many more of you are leaders than you realize. But let me just, a word to leaders. There is a high, 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 high responsibility that's placed upon leadership in the body of Christ. And there is no room, because this, this shows us what happens, there's no room for fear to be any part of a leadership, a leader's makeup. If you are, if you are, if you are trapped by fear, or you are, your fear just has this hold on you, you better get it figured out or you step down from leadership. Because you're going to end up doing what Peter did here. His fear led him to a, a, a major leadership failure. Had this happened before? Yes, it had. This time he's dragging Barnabas into it. That's, that's serious to me. His fear led to division in the family of God. And I'm just going to throw it out there. It happens every single time you have a leader in the church that is motivated by fear. It causes division. Every time. Peter's fear led to gospel confusion or devi deviation. Now let me come back to the thought for all of us. My life, your life is an expression of the gospel. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Peter being a Jew said the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah and I'm going to follow him. I'm putting my faith in him and I am his disciple. I will leave my boats. I'll leave my nets. I will follow Jesus. Remember? Now, his life is a living expression of the gospel. What does that mean? It means everything I say and do reflects on the gospel. Think about it. I was at several baseball games this week. Tis the season. And some are fun to watch, some are not fun to watch. And it, it all has to do with the age. They're cute, but good grief. I'm really picking on little kids this morning. But I was at these games, and, and the older ones or like two and a half, three hours. And I was, in, I was at one of the, the games this week, and some people walked up and said, hey, people I hadn't seen, how long, 20 years, 20 plus years? We used to watch their, their son, Becky did daycare in the early years of our marriage, and it, and it was their son was one of those kids. And it struck me as I'm talking with them, and we're, they're just catching up and telling their story. Here's what struck me. What, what was I acting like five minutes ago? What was I saying to the, to the umpire? What was I saying to the players? Or what was I saying to the coach? Or what was, I, what was I doing? You with me? Every aspect of our life is meant to be a living expression of the gospel. And we're either going to clarify it or we're going to contradict it. My life matters, your life matters as a follower of Jesus Christ because it will either clarify the gospel or contradict the gospel, muddy up the waters. You with me? 
every word out of my mouth, every action, every, every moment of my interaction with my wife and how I love her or not love her like Jesus loves the church, every time I interact with my my family across the street, across the neighborhood. Yesterday I interacted with some neighbors. Those moments, my grandkids, my, child, my adult children, my son-in-law, the barista. You with me? You fill in the blanks. God intends, this is plan A, that our lives would reflect the gospel. Let me say it this way. This is how I want to encourage us to answer this question, at least in part. What is God asking of me? Jesus is asking me to live out the reality of the cross in every moment of my life. And I use the word cross purposely because Paul will in just a second. The reality of the cross, what that means, that symbol, this wood cross, this necklace that we put around our neck, this idea of a cross and that the Son of God was crucified by the Romans on a cross. It's so much bigger than that. Would you agree? Jesus is asking me to live out the reality of the cross in every moment of my life. Verse 15, we who are Jews, Paul then is going to give us some application, and here's where he's going to get really personal. He's done reflecting on that moment with Peter. We know that it went well. We have Peter in, in his epistle saying, hey, listen to Paul. You guys read Paul's writings, those are good, right? So it turns out well, but he's moved on from that moment, and he's, he's going to kind of apply it, and he's going to get very personal, and I want us to get personal with him. We who were Jews by birth, I was, if, like Paul, born a, a Jew from birth, and not Gentile sinners, not outside the, the Jerusalem or Israel, we know, catch this, Paul speaking, we know that no one, no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. What is justified? Justification. Justified means to be acquitted. It means to have the guilt that you're due removed from your account. When the judge says you're acquitted, you are not found guilty, that's justification. How does that happen? Well, as human beings, almost from the beginning, we've come up with a lot of different ideas, and they all center around the, the same concept, that maybe if my good outweighs my bad, then God will pronounce me acquitted. We, we, we do pictures, right? The scales, I mean, we do a lot, of, and we've, we've developed religion after religion, faith systems after faith system. They're in every culture, in every people group, every tribe, every nation, and have been from almost the beginning of time, right? With, with, with Cain and Abel, it began to sprout seeds, and this is what we got to do. This is how God is, I'm going to be good with God, and here, here is a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee, who had come to faith in Jesus. He says, we know that no one can be justified by any system of good works, particular or even the very law of God that's good that God gave us. Right? Is he saying the law is bad? No, he's not. Did Jesus say the law was bad? No, he came to fulfill it. But he says, we know you can't be justified by doing these things. You can't earn it. The only way someone is justified is by faith in Jesus Christ. We have believed in Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Don't miss who's saying this, who the Holy Spirit is using to write this. 
the, the, as far as we know, the, the one human being that was more committed to the law than anyone else has ever lived on this earth, right? In Philippians, he talks about it. He says, I'm telling you, you cannot be justified by keeping a system, even if the system is given to us by God. The Ten Commandments are amazing. They reflect who God is. The law reflects God's nature. It's good. That's not the problem, Paul says. Paul says the problem is we aren't good. We can't keep it. We can't do it. The only way for me to be right with God is through Jesus Christ. The works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. That's a significant statement. Because it's easy, we we love to compare, don't we? Right? We have judgments about Hitler. And then we have judgments about Mother Teresa. Right? Right? And we look at that, and we look at that, and say, wow, whoa, whoa, wow, you know, and certainly, surely, Mother Teresa can earn her way to rightness with God. Makes more sense, doesn't it? Humanly speaking, no one, no human being, no matter how good they are, will be justified by keeping the law. But what if we ourselves were also found to be sinners? That is, he's speaking of, of those who put their faith in Jesus, what if we're found to be sinners while we're seeking to be justified by Jesus? We're, we're embracing Jesus Christ, the gospel, and we're living by grace. What if we break the law during that time? Is Christ now promoting sin? In other words, is grace this? You can do whatever you want, and then just confess it, and, and you'll be forgiven. Don't worry about the law. Don't worry about the ten. Don't worry about, you know, coveting and stealing and lying. And all You know, it's all, you just, we confess our sins. He's faithful just to forgive us, right? And we're just going to be He said, is that what we're saying? Is Jesus now promoting disobedience to the law? Is that what Jesus promoted? No, he said, I came to fulfill the law. And then he said what? If you love God with everything that you are, and you love your neighbors yourself, you will, in fact, fulfill the law. You'll live it. He says, no, 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 no. you're missing the point if that's what your conclusion is. Jesus is not a promoter of sin. Absolutely not. But he says, if I rebuild the system that I tore down, I put it back in place in my life, I turn back to the law, I show myself to be a breaker. That's the outcome of trying to live by the law. That's the purpose of the law, right? To show us that we can't do it. The law's good. Praise God that God went to that link to help me understand how much of a sinner I am. Isn't that necessary for repentance and for faith? Come on. Some of you in this room might still be there. I'm not that bad. You know, I'm better than most. Now, don't raise your hand. I'm not trying to call anybody out. We've all been there. Some of you might still be there. As a a Christian, you might be still thinking this way. Or someone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus. Well, come on. How bad can it be? I mean, come on, you know. And then you make your list, right? You have a list of things that you do, and you have a list of things that you don't do that everybody else does. I rebuild this system I tore down and I show myself that I'm, I'm a lawbreaker. It just reveals again how sinful I am. For through the law, he gained an understanding. God used the law to basically later he'll say crucify to the law. I'm crucified. I died to the law. I'm dead to it so that I might live for God. Because as Matt challenged a few minutes ago, we can't serve two masters, can we? 
I can't serve this and him. I can't serve my idea, my system, what I come to believe that's going to make me right with God and God. I got to choose. And he says, I, I, I died to the law. His whole previous life was buried. You read about it in Philippians. I counted it as loss. In fact, he says it's like a big pile of, yeah. I'm, I'm leaving it there to see what I get. I got dung, caca, I heard poop. Okay, we'll stop there before it gets dangerous, okay? Okay, just, okay. Because this is being broadcast. On, yeah. And we're glad you guys are watching. I hope you didn't just tune in, is right, because then all this would be a big pile of poop. Paul says, I just, it's worthless. I put it all, I died to the law, and I live for God. And listen to this. This is, this is, the, this is the most intimate expression I believe we have from the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but he lives in me. I was cru- When he was there on the cross, and what, what, what he accomplished, and what happened to him, I reaped the benefits. It's like I was there with him, because he said, you put your faith in me, and, you, and, and you're mine, and you'll be crucified to the old life, the, the flesh, and I'll give you new life, because hold on, in three days... <laughs> You haven't seen nothing yet. Paul says, I'm crucified with him. I share in all that he accomplished. And it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The The life that I'm now living in the body, the time that I've left on this earth, I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Where did he give himself for us? On the the cross. And so... I cannot, I will not, I do not set aside the grace of God. And some of you, some of us, set aside the grace of God this week in our prayer, in our behavior, in our actions. We deviated from the gospel. I know that to be true because that's our, that's our old flesh, right? That calls us back to the law, to some kind of system, to some, something man-centered. Can I say it that way? You understand what I mean? We deviate from grace. We lay it aside, and Paul says, stop. I can't. I will not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, if in fact I can be right with God by keeping the law, listen to this and hear his passion, his emotion, then Christ died for nothing. Then the suffering on the cross was just a waste. It didn't mean anything. And can you hear him? He's saying, I can't wrap my brain around that. I can't come to that conclusion that that was all just, you know, some teacher got executed by the Romans because the Jewish leaders didn't like him. But if I can get right with God through keeping the rules by keeping the law, then that was meaningless. Can you hear him? Can you hear his deep love for Jesus and what Jesus did for him on the cross? The consequence of embracing the gospel, i got to wrap up. The consequence of embracing the gospel is that my life is no longer mine. Say that to yourself, whisper it, say it to your, your husband or wife or your friend next to you. Go ahead. The consequence of putting my faith in Jesus Christ and standing on his grace means that my life is no longer mine. I'm no longer free to pursue good or bad. I need to live as a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every word, every action, every behavior. What is God asking of me? He's calling me, he's calling you to let go of everything. 
And here's what I want you to do. If you're, if you're willing to do this, write this down. Christ is calling me to let go of and then just put a blank line and embrace the promise of the cross. Then you fill in the blank. Could be a relationship, it could be a job, it could be your bank account, it could be health, could be safety, right? Right? That could be something that we put in there. Something we hang, it could be a, it could be a 401k, it could be your, the company that you work for, the business that you own. Jesus is calling us. What is he asking of me? He's asking me to let go of everything and embrace the promise of the cross. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team, and worship team, you come up, just know I'm going to, I'm going to read some scriptures. I'm going to invite you. They're going to be up there. You can read them. You can close your eyes. We need to, we need to get a little taste of the significance of the cross. Why? Because if I'm going to let go of everything else and grab onto the cross, I better know exactly what it is that I'm grabbing onto. You with me? Otherwise, fear is going to creep its way back in there. And if it can happen to Peter, who walked with Jesus and experienced the crucifixion, saw the empty tomb and experienced grace, if it can happen to him, can it happen to me? Can it happen to you? Listen to these words. I'm not going to read the addresses. Is that okay? I'm just going to read. Okay. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But as for me, Paul would say later in Galatians, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. He, Jesus, did this so that he might reconcile both to God, both meaning Jew and Gentile, in one body through the cross, and put the hostility to death by the, the cross. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through, through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Don't miss that. The cross is the foundation for what is settled in heaven as well as on earth. And when you were dead, when Kurt was dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of my flesh, he made me alive with him and forgave me all my transgressions. He erased the certificate of death, the warrant that said I was guilty, the, the declaration of the judge, that certificate of death, he erased it. And all the obligations, all the consequences that come with it, because it was against us, it was against me, and then it was opposed to us, to me. And he's taken it out of the way. He literally has taken it out of the picture. How? By nailing that guilty certificate to the cross. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all those who have come before have lived a life of faith. 
standing on grace, all those who've come before us, let's look at that and let's lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let's run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him, here's the model, here's our example, he endured the cross. He despised the shame, wasn't a factor, and he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. What is Jesus asking of us? He's asking us to let go of everything. He's asking us to trust him that that can support the weight that I bring to it. My fear, my doubt, my anger, my pride, that I can come to the cross and I can grab a hold of the cross and I can daily, moment by moment, live out the reality of the gospel. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I, was, I benefit from everything that happened and so do we. And so now when I leave Crossroads Auditorium and I go out to lunch and I go to my home and I go to my family and I go to school this week and I go to work and I interact with people, it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Amen. Father, draw us to yourself as we open our mouths. Would you please open our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.